Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio. Special Operations Military News and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. Hey, what's going on? This is Rad, the host of Soft Rep Radio, and I have a very special guest today, one that I've been really working with, trying to get him on the show, and he finally was able to get on. I'm super excited to have Derek Liebart with me, and he is the author of Unlikely Heroes, which is about the the men, the four men specifically, you know, these horsemen that surrounded Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the FDR time when we're talking, you know, World War II is going on, the New Deal is being brought up, democracy is on thin ice. It's almost like history is repeating itself right now, but I want to welcome you to the show and thank you, Derek. Well, thank you, Red, indeed. Now, with that said, do you see being such a, you know, a person who knows just about everything to going on with FDR during that time, do you see any similarities to today and then that just, just like hits you right off the bat? Absolutely so. And that's one driving reason that brought me to this subject. The similarities, perhaps not as extreme between the Great Depression years, the World War II years, and today, we're encountering extremities of our own with economic turmoil, inequality, and altered American role in the world, as well as other issues that were significant for that long 12-year presidency of Franklin Roosevelt. One can even think of climate change. In that era, in the mid-30s, it was the Dust Bowl that eviscerated so much Midwestern farmland. One can think of the challenges of a war in Europe, which we now, at a different level, are encountering again. The need for military preparedness and a severely divided America, certainly during the Depression, we talk about polarization today. It was extraordinarily polarized then, oftentimes between haves and haves-nots. So all the extremity 
of those dozen years, one can indeed extract lessons for today, lessons on leadership, on preparedness, on how we can better unify ourselves. Right. So we can kind of take the lessons that we uh, have learned and apply them to today to stop (laughs) that situation from happening. Now, back in the day, 30s and 40s and the war going on, even early in the late 20s, you know, they had a pandemic. They had, uh, you know, 1918 with the flu, and then they had the roaring 20s where they had to recover from the same type of scenarios that we're currently dealing with today. And then you have leadership within of our own, you know, political sphere here that were also sympathizers to, like, they're German-Americans, you know, perhaps, or their bloodlines go over to Germany, and they're like, uh, we're not so mad that Germany's doing what it's doing. And they're like, you know, wielding power within our Congress and our Senate, you know. What I try to do in all my books is extract lessons for today, particularly lessons on leadership. As you know, a previous book of mine, To Dare and to Conquer, concerned special operations and how special operations military elites have altered courses of history over the last three millennia. So I regard history as such a rich, entertaining reservoir from which we can extract lessons to apply to our own lives and circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, do you feel that uh, today's New Deal is kind of in the same compass as you know, FDR's new deal. Like, you know how we're talking about these new deals. It's not just a, you know, a current new branded uh, bill or proposal, the new deal. It's based off of like what FDR brought around. Well, you're entirely right. There's a lot of talk in Washington, certainly in the current administration, about a new deal. And in the Oval Office itself hangs the portrait of Franklin Roosevelt. And indeed, the current president is certainly the last president that's likely to be born of the 1930s, of the FDR era. Now, the New Deal, by definition, was a vast program of reforms, projects, new institutions. But we have to be careful with what we wish for when we talk about a New Deal. The New Deal also was a reflection of larger-than-life figures in American politics, figures like Franklin Roosevelt and his four closest lieutenants, whom I call his, his, his most intimate associates. And that would have been Harry Hopkins, who was the de facto Secretary of Public Welfare, Harold Ickes, a phenomenally powerful Secretary of the Interior, Frances Perkins, the first woman to be in a presidential cabinet serving as Secretary of Labor, and Henry Wallace, who ran the biggest government department, which was agriculture, and then who was elected vice president in 1940. At the time, during the celebrity-crazed 1930s, these were enormous figures. And indeed, by the war, they would become globally recognized. These four are the only individuals who served with FDR at the very top of government from the beginning, 90 years ago, this weekend, March 4th, 1933, He was inaugurated under the old constitutional calendar until the very end, until he died on April 12th, 1945. At that era, a cabinet official was indeed regarded as a statesman, as a celebrity. Today, we have so many countervailing forces, think tanks, social media, etc. But if you were a cabinet officer in that era, and there were only 10 of them, You were considered part of the president's official family. Oftentimes, there would be 19 guns loose when you would go to visiting a city. Your speeches were chronicled constantly in the newspaper. So in many ways, that level of celebrity politics, of big man politics, is not or should not be the best approach for America to governance. 
So when we talk about a new deal, we're implicitly asking for these larger than life officials, and that might not be the best of ideas. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Yeah, careful what you wish for, right? The genie yeah. could be coming out of the bottle, and it might be fun for the first two wishes. <laughs> the ideals of the New Deal itself were very, very American. When we think of the New Deal, it's easy to caricature it as a form of collectivism, or as Republicans then and today would describe it as a form of socialism. Mm -hmm. But the way that FDR and his four lieutenants saw the New Deal, it was the highest order of individualism in their eyes, because it ensured that no American would be without health care, right. would be prejudiced because of his class or color or national background. That Is this where Social Security came from? That Social Security, indeed, and this would enable individualism mm -hmm. and a New Deal for farmers, the agricultural compact. So right. when FDR and his closest associates spoke of the New Deal, it was not simply another brand of collectivism. They saw it as empowering the American individual against what was then, as today, a very powerful corporate state. And FDR and his lieutenants would often say there have been so many handouts, so many benefits to big corporations, certainly of that era railroads, mining companies, that now we're going to give the rest of the country a shot. And during the Depression, it was not as easy as saying, oh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged individualism. This was the first time that the American government acknowledged that it had a role in protecting its vulnerable citizens in peacetime as during war. So he's just, so FDR was just 
think tanking with his lieutenants of how to strengthen the individual by giving them the means to have a social security coming in to keep them on their feet if they met the criteria, you know, which is, I think you have to be in your sixties, right. To start, you know, recuperating those things, but still it's there. And then, you know, he wanted to have healthcare. How come we have, why do you think it's such a hard thing for us to grab onto healthcare? Is it just capitalism versus, you know, neighborly being that way to one another? Do you feel? Healthcare was the one great accomplishment that the Roosevelt administration could not deliver. And Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, who was really the point person of so many of these social programs, said at the end of this adventure in 1945 that this was her greatest disappointment, that equal access to quality health care could not be provided to Americans, that health care was not to be regarded as a human right. Now, why was that not accomplished? It was very easy. It was the physician's lobby, the American Medical Association at that time, which was the most powerful healthcare lobby. Today, it's likely to be the American Hospital Association and Big Pharma. But at that time, it was the American Medical Association, which denounced healthcare as a human right as socialism, and it went nowhere. Yeah. And it just like right there. So they just had the power to bring in the guillotine and just cut it right there because they're like, no better. And in that era, healthcare was not as exorbitantly expensive as it is today. Today, at least half the bankruptcies in America, the personal bankruptcies come from our medical bills, which Mm -hmm. are unsustainable. We might have insurance, for example, But still, a family can run up tens of thousands of dollars in debt. At that time, health care was not so exorbitant. And Francis Perkins, again, the point person of these social policies, had a very clear definition of what fairness was. She said, fairness is when a working man does not have to give up his entire month's salary to take a baby to a physician. That was her measuring stick. And as you know, today, so many times our fellow citizens have to think twice about going to a physician or taking a child to a physician. Or themselves. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, you know, uh, we shudder at like, oh, I don't want to go pay a hundred dollar copay at the ER. I don't want to have to, you know, if you have insurance, if you're fortunate to even have insurance. And these inequities are not a question of left or right. They're not a question if you're a Republican or a Democrat, or that's what, say, Francis Perkins would have argued. It's a question of basic fairness and of Americanism. Another issue of that time was the extraordinary gap between the average worker and the average corporate CEO which today is laughable because FDR denounced that a CEO might be making 10 times perhaps more than his average worker on the assembly line. And today, as you know, it's so whacked out that an average CEO would make 350 times the average working age of the American. So these are the issues that FDR and his four closest associates wrestled with. And indeed, you can see many commonalities to today. Yeah, it's true. You know, I do run my own business and we have a philosophy, my partner and I, and it's like to keep it real, right? So my staff and I, we all work together. We're all in the same thing together. So we all pretty much pull in the same thing together. I do own it. I do put my neck on the line. I do put everything I have in my business in front of me. You know, this is everything I've got. So I'm going to be a little bit more protective and that comes with a little bit more pay. All right. But it's just a little bit more. It's what you would expect. It's not this 10, 30, 600 times your manager's salary while you're still like expecting him to do 25 different jobs. Yes for that same pay and just like, well, you can milk it. It's like, uh, you know, so I go in to help offset that. So when we think of why so many Americans today, as at that era, are aggrieved 
it's not too difficult to point to many of the same underlying problems. You leave aside racial issues, but these questions of economic fairness, of mm-hmm. health care, of inequities between the unions and the clout of a multinational corporation. These are not left-right issues, certainly not in my mind, but they're ones that resonate with all of us. And indeed, what FDR encountered during the 30s was political extremism Mm. from the left and from the right. Because by 1933, at the depths of the Depression, it was very much a question of not allowing your farm to be foreclosed in Nebraska, for example, you and your neighbors would band together and you would keep the sheriffs at bay. Mm -hmm. There was much incipient violence, especially in in the Midwest on the plains and in the West itself. And FDR was completely aware of the prospect of a revolution in the United States without exaggeration. Hard to brand it left, hard to brand it right, but it was deep grievance that was boiling over. Yeah, revolution, you know, and, and that's that's the word that is, you know, it's not a civil war. It's a revolution, right? That's where you want to see change within itself. And so I'd imagine all these farmers, yeah, you know, I, I do know the history, right? I have been in class. Sure. I do know this is not nothing new you're telling. I, I understand that history lesson. Why don't other people why that, that have been taught why are why are they just not seeing what's happening today versus what happened then, which is very similar on paper, right? Well, you and me and your listeners, yes, we have an appreciation for history, but so many of our fellow citizens lead such extremely busy, pressured lives that opening a history book can be a luxury. What I try to offer are stories that present history in ways that engage individuals and can be entertaining. That's the best type of history to write, not the type of turgid textbooks that we we remember from high school. But history to me has always been so thrilling because at its best, it's truly acute storytelling and exciting and adventures. And when we think of FDR crippled from polio, crippled being the word of the time. And each of those four closest associates were crippled in their own way. For example, Harry Hopkins was wrecked with ulcers and then had two thirds of his stomach removed from stomach cancer. Harold Ickes was bipolar by any definition. Henry Wallace had an intellect that the New York Times described as freakish and that distanced him from so many lesser intelligent people. FDR understood these individual vulnerabilities as he understood the vulnerability of the nation. And he raised up these foursome and allowed them to soar. Now, with FDR, he was elected three times, right? For our listeners. Four times. Four last, times. Last one was in 1944. Yeah, four times elected. Not like I'm just going to try to roll into it. It was elections and done. Yes. Well, when he ran for a third term, it broke the precedent set by none other than George Washington. No president had dared run for a third term. And indeed, there was talk of a military coup at that time as well because of forces on the right turning against FDR in 1940. So it was a dramatic time of countless convulsions. We talk of breaking the norms today during the Great Depression and World War II, all kinds of so-called norms Mm -hmm. were being broken. Yeah, they were, right? And he was, uh, he he enabled the conscriptions, right? FDR, he brought in, uh, you know, the draft for, yeah, right, and got that going. And so he was able to get the American young man, family, 
let's just say their families, like, you know, hey, my 16-year-old son's trying to join the war effort. You know, he's often trying to join the war effort or or their 17, 18-year-old got through and got into the war effort. And now they're out there fighting on the beaches or getting ready to go and do all that uh, Storm and Norman kind of stuff that, you know, we've learned about. You know, FDR was able to bring the country together to do that, right? And then if you want to flash forward to kind of like a Vietnam conscription, it was not so welcome. It was like, no, this ain't my war, man. I'm not going over there. You don't, I don't want to go. I'm going up to Canada. I'm going to Mexico. But during FDR, everyone was like, yeah, I will go because they saw the dire need of really good versus evil happening. Utterly. And civilization was itself at stake if we consider the armed might, not just of Nazi Germany, but indeed of the Soviet Union. And we can't forget that the Soviet Union, until June 1941, was closely allied with the Nazis. And to that end, tyranny sat from the English Channel all the way to the Pacific. So there were dire, dire threats. But there are two points I want to make, one on domestic policy during the 1930s, the other for the war years during the 40s. During the New Deal, FDR was criticized very, very much by liberal Americans and by the left for not being progressive enough. There was great pressure in 1933 to nationalize the banks, and arguably the banks would have been happy to be nationalized as they were collapsing. The mining industry begged the White House to nationalize all of it because it was economically untenable as the mines were closing during the Great Depression. But FDR was a dyed-in-the-wool aristocratic capitalist, and the question of such nationalization policies, call them what you will, didn't occur to him, and he negated all of that. So he, during the 1930s, not only saved democracy, but also saved the, tr the traditional American capitalist system. And then during World War II, he proved himself a phenomenal warlord because so many of his idiosyncrasies, his uh, ability to evaluate talent, for example. He was able to find the best of the best military commanders and in turn to raise them up. And he had a very acute intelligence himself, which so many historians overlook, that he was an expert at logistics, climate, geography, all of which came into play during the war. His one great failing, of course, was that he underestimated the evil of Stalin. Mm -hmm. And that indeed opened up Eastern Europe to Soviet conquest by 1944. Yeah, and then he was just in kind of his last legs of his life. If He's expiring in 1945. And so you have FDR just doing the most he can, trying to do the best he can. Really, four terms, you know. That's well, four terms <laughs> for any of us, even at the peak of health. Right. But he was not only a paraplegic, uh, confined for life to his wheelchair, despite the newsreels of his being seen on crutches. He had many, many other ailments, melanoma, uh, terrible nasal congestion from which he suffered. He smoked heavily four packs right. a day during most of his presidency. And that was ganging up on him. So by the end, when he was 63, which was then considered old, he indeed was in failing health. Mm -hmm. But my key finding from Unlikely Heroes is that perhaps no presidency in American history is as surrounded by myth as is FDR's presidency myth about how the New Deal was created and implemented, myths about FDR's views on black Americans and civil rights, the myth that he had a friendship with Churchill, which is utterly loopy. That friendship, if anything existed, went one way between Churchill and FDR. FDR had no affection for Britain and its empire. 
And FDR, in many ways, was incapable of friendship, according to the woman who was closest to him, his chief of staff, de facto, Missy Lehand, whereas Churchill was ebullient and outgoing. So myths upon myths cloud this presidency. Why? Because historians have always focused on FDR, the Titanic leader himself, and they rarely have nudged the spotlight away from him to better understand the four closest associates at the top. And when we look at them, those four associates, we get a better understanding of FDR the man and of his presidency. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. So do you feel that, you know, I just wish that there was like a simple solution to, to what I want to ask. It's just that how can we just avoid what we're seeing? You know, how can we avoid it? How can we avoid what we almost had happen last time? You know, how we're going down kind of the same past, the same struggles. There's, there's complete divisiveness right now in, in politics with, you know, uh, the right and left just coming at each other so hard. There's what's this common unity that's going to get us together, you know, to just say, Hey, we have to realize that we are all on the same boat together. We're all an American people together. You know, how did FDR, what was his magic spell? Well, he had indeed, as you say, the magic ability to empathize and communicate with his fellow citizens. But he also understood what needs to be understood today as well, this element of basic American fairness. And that can't, in my opinion, be labeled liberal or conservative, left or right. As we were talking about earlier, however it's structured, enabling Americans, all Americans, equal access to quality health care, education, Polls show that leave aside left or right, many Americans agree on these basic issues, on the importance of organized labor, for instance, to deal on a level playing field with corporations, or child care, access such as that. These are basic issues of fairness, as FDR would have defined them. And rugged individualism, which the Republicans extolled in that era, it's a phrase from the late 1920s. Rugged individualism, yes, it sounds good. And America is based on individualism in contrast to so many other nations. But one has to recognize that the highest order of individualism can be giving everybody a shot 
not just the better education you get, the fancier zip code you live in. So it's a basic element of fairness. And I'm constantly struck, today I live in Washington, this does not have to be an issue of left or right, Democratic or Republican. Right. I mean, you're right there. You write about it. You know, you're, you have a whole book that's out. It's called Unlikely Heroes, and it touches base on the FDR, I'm going to say chronicle stories, historical. You bring it to light for us to enjoy and understand. Now, aside from that, what was FDR doing with the military in regards to like special operations guys, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, that has to be something that was on his plate. Do you have any insight into what he was doing? Utterly. And it's one of the great myths, for example, that America was entirely vulnerable militarily during the 1930s and that we were unprepared for war. To be sure, the United States was a global, it was a superpower island nation, if we can think of it. We still depended on the Atlantic and the Pacific as our moats. We were a superpower by any definition economically. Yet Britain's Royal Navy was easily the most powerful navy in the world. The Germans quickly during the 1930s built up the most formidable of land forces in the world. But it's always overlooked that there was nearly a stealth military buildup in the United States during the 30s, depths of the Depression. It mostly concentrated on building up the Navy in the later 30s, from 1937 on, laying out uh, the first aircraft carriers, destroyers, battleships. Remember that FDR himself had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I, and he had a, a passion for the Navy. And building up the Navy was easy for him to explain. It was all defensive. We're defending our ocean moats. But indeed, the Work Progress Administration the WPA also had a role in building up the army in creating barracks, landing fields, in training young men through the Civilian Conservation Corps, not as soldiers, but giving them a military-like discipline and enabling colonels such as George C. Marshall, who would become the chief of staff during World War II to lead civilians. All of this was happening under the radar during the Great Depression because the national focus was on pulling up out of the e economic agony. But at the same time, FDR was extremely attuned to world affairs. It's forgotten that he spoke French fluently. His German was competent and he read Spanish easily. Henry Wallace, vice president, spoke Spanish fluently, German competently, and he taught himself Russian very quickly. Frances Perkins, secretary of labor, her French was perfect. These were people attuned to yes. the world. They were. They were. They were taking on extra duties to communicate respectfully with their counterparts. So it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You know, that way you don't think, oh, they're talking bad about me because you don't understand them. And they're really just saying hello, but they may have a different way of saying it in their language or they're like learning Mandarin or learning Russian or learning French, learning just these basic communication skills is really what I would imagine world leaders should be able to do. You see other world leaders like President Macron of France speaks English. Yeah. Do we speak French? Right. Just straight up. I'm just saying the you know, nothing personal to anybody that's the leadership of our country, but do you speak French? You know, if you do, totally cool. Do you speak Spanish? Maybe that's a quality I should want to see in the next candidate out there. It's like, hey, I also speak to these other people. I can, I can have a world dialogue. Well, in foreign affairs, Americans have every right to be aggrieved 
we've had a series of failed wars in a row. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. These are failures by any definition. Failures because we didn't remotely accomplish what was pledged at the start. And Americans have every right to be skeptical about foreign affairs and those in Washington who are making these decisions about foreign affairs, many of them being naive, many of them being political appointees. And to that end, we've got lots of reason to be disappointed in our accomplishments in foreign policy, certainly over the last generation. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to just really, I know you're you're talking FDR, but in, in Iraq, we had sent over someone to take over the country that didn't even speak the language or didn't even have any business in the Middle East. But yet he went over there and just said, everybody's fired. The Ba'ath Party's now this organization under our laws, and we're going to go after them. And Yes, not to divert our subject. I'm happy yeah. to talk about this. This was Jerry Bremer. He yes. was a, an employee of Kissinger and Associates. He had no experience in the Middle East, let alone language. But he was patronized by Mr. Kissinger, who injected him into the George W. Bush administration, which had the hopelessly naive vision of trying to transform the Middle East, democratize the Middle East, as if that is something America could accomplish with a heavy hand. Mm -hmm. And not just Bremer, he was a mere tool, but so many others, military and civilians, showed themselves desperately naive about the Middle East, about Afghanistan. And it's eerie the extent to which the disasters in, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, really replicate those of Vietnam, you know, a generation previous to that. Right. And so here's my dad, former Vietnam, watching this generation go into another Vietnam. That's kind of how, <laughs> good job. You know, and uh, I'm not saying that those that went and fought in Iraq next to their their battle buddies, you know, it's not you. It's you did your thing. It's the people that are putting us in these places for something that for these reasons out there that maybe we shouldn't eat. And yeah. a big difference between when we went to war in World War Two and afterward. One, this was no war of choice. We were fighting for our survival against right. Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Japan attacked us, of course, at Pearl Harbor, and Germany declared war on us three days later. There was no naivete that this was going to be easy. You can see in the run-ups to Vietnam, to the Iraq War, and to nation-building in Afghanistan, that time and time again, we told ourselves, this is going to be easy. Vietnam, we were going to clean the clock of the Viet Cong, quote-unquote from prominent generals. Victory was always right around the corner, we would hear from generals in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Americans had no such illusion, 1940, 41, and 42, when we finally went to war. We knew that fighting the Wehrmacht, fighting Imperial Japan, was fighting the best military forces in the world. So you had no illusion that, oh, we'll be home by Christmas. This will be easy. They will welcome us you know, with no. open arms. Yeah. This has to be done. This is a, you know, till it's done. And right. the, you know, till the last of our, you know, let's say Private Ryan, right? I mean, it was so serious that four of her boys were in the war in the movie and they had to go and try to save the one dude because they couldn't let all four of her boys just die. So there's a spoiler for you if you haven't seen Saving Private Ryan. But listen, it's like, you know, at the time it was like, here is my sons and daughters. And then on the home front, the women that weren't deployed were doing whatever they could here for the war effort. It was a huge. This is where we see FDR's four lieutenants 
making themselves central to World War II victory. Frances Perkins mobilizing the female workforce on the home front, you know, creating daycare centers, hospitals oh, for yeah. the, the, the wives and children of the men who were off in battle. World War II was also a war of logistics and a war of oil. The side which was able to deliver the most oil at the right time was going to win. About 7 billion barrels of oil were consumed during that war. 6 billion of those barrels came from the United States. And Harold Ickes was the energy czar. And he was able to arrange tankers, pipelines that would deliver oil to our forces and the forces of our allies, including sure. the Red Army, you know, at the right time and the right place to achieve victory. Yeah. And so you have someone who is all about agriculture with Wallace. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to stop all of the bankruptcies and probably working with the Midwesterns. You've got Francis, who's mobilizing the women and the movement, and they're making ammunition and rivets on the planes and the whole nine yards. Okay. <laughs> Rosie the Riveter, that's the whole era. And then Ike's, what was his, what was his uh, game again? What was he all about? He was a phenomenally powerful secretary of the interior, but he was yes. also what we would today call energy czar. He had ultimate authority over all forms of energy, coal, oil, gas, every form, hydro, every form of energy he was responsible for. He was in charge of that. And so he was making sure it was getting to the proper places where it needed to go. And then who's that fourth one that I'm not bringing up real quick here? Harry Hopkins, yes. who became an intimate advisor to FDR by the late 30s, and then during the war made himself indispensable as a political military go-between between the White House and our allies overseas and administrating Lend-Lease, for instance. But Harry Hopkins was inexplicably naive about Stalinism. And to that end, an abundance of Lend-Lease materiel went to Stalin far, far beyond what was required by the Red Army. And I argue in my final chapters that it was by no means inevitable that the Red Army had to conquer all of Eastern Europe. All historians say, well, there was no alternative. By the Alta Conference in February 1945, it was a fait accompli. The Red Army was there and there was nothing we could do about it. That's perfectly correct. By then it was too late. But by late 1943, certainly during 1944, we should have quietly pulled back on the Lend-Lease that was flowing to the Soviet Union and put conditions on it and use his own language to speak back mm -hmm. to Stalin. How do we solve the world's problems? <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, like, gee, so it's good to have these four horsemen, lieutenants in his sphere that are able to focus on all those things. I'm, I'm happy because here we are today. All right. So it was, it was good moves. There's good chess moves right there because we're here today talking in English, not another language. Yes. There were many, many close calls during the yes. 1930s and 1940s and then after Roosevelt died in April 1945, these four lieutenants stayed on for a while under Truman. But of course, Truman wanted his own people in those roles. And after 13 years in government, they were eager to get out. Which sure, they did like... later, by later 1945, 46, they were all out of government. But by then... They, along with FDR, had really, really redefined American life and very much shaped the America that we know today. I just want to clap because <laughs> that's a good thing. OK, I mean, I do like a healthcare mantra. I'm not against that as as an American citizen, as my own feelings. You know, I feel that that's a good thing that I think we should all try to achieve, because my debate about healthcare is we're going to get it 
anyways, you know, so why not just get it sooner? And so if we're going to be guaranteed it anyway, so you can't be mad about a universal health care plan when there's already a universal health care plan. It's just that health, you can't get yeah. it to 60. Health care may be exhibit A, not only of a failing system, but also of economic inequality. The largest hospital system, nonprofit hospital system in the United States is Ascension Health. I served for nine years on the board of trustees of one of the Ascension Health hospitals. It's enormous. They own hospitals, healthcare centers all over the United States, and they are a nonprofit. Yeah. The CEO pays himself a base salary of thirteen million a year. Thirteen million a year while going out of the way of Ascension leadership, say, to break nursing unions and to collect bills very aggressively from hospital patients unable to pay. But a 13 million annual salary for a hospital system CEO, let alone a nonprofit hospital system, is unconscionable. And FDR would have called out individuals by name for such piggishness. Indeed, he did. He called out by name the CEOs of the steel industry mm-hmm. who had the temerity to make more than a hundred times, just a mere hundred times what their workers were making. But here we put up with compensation, not only 13 million for a, a nonprofit hospital system administrator, but also inequities in the tax structures your followers know very well firsthand. And the FICA tax, Social Security, is with us, thankfully, since 1936-37. Right. But as Bernie Sanders would say, the millionaires and the billionaires pay far, 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 far less of their income in Social That's Security. Bernie. He would say that. Yeah. Now, that's, is that a left or a right issue? That I see it as completely irrelevant, whether it's liberal Correct. or conservative. It's a fairness issue. That's right. It is. It's like, it should matter if you live on this side of the tracks or this side of the tracks, because let's say the hospital should take care of both sides. Just like, that's it. Everybody should have access to that. You should have women with access to prenatal health care uh, in all communities. You should have, you know, access to MRIs and getting things looked at. And, and I, I recall a, a doctor uh, was from like Canada and an American congressman was giving him a hard time, giving her a hard time about, oh, well, if we go to universal health care, you know, you're not going to make any money. And she's like, well, I already work in universal health care yeah. and I make good money. <laughs> That's what she said, you know, straight up. She works in Canada and she's a doctor and she's like, I might lose maybe 10% of my salary. You might lose 10%. A doctor might lose just 10% of their overall salary on a universal health care system program than not. Right. So if they're just for profit, they're going to make that extra 10%. But if it's a, if it's a matter of, you know, the Hippocratic oath. Okay. And if it's a matter of, you know, do no harm and things like that, then what's 10% doc, you know what I mean? Like, right. But it's not physicians compensation that is burdensome today. Okay. Uh, the difference between healthcare of the thirties and forties and today is this enormous administrative apparatus that has grown up where you pay the administrators, not just a $13 million salary at Ascension, but here in Washington, MedStar is the local hospital provider, a nonprofit, of course. And the CEO pays himself 7.5 million a year. And if a CEO pays himself 7.5 million, that means the EVP gets, say, 5 million. And the the associate VP gets $3 million, et cetera, sure. and these bloated salaries at the same time that all too many Americans, certainly in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, are struggling terribly to pay fees for health care. So 
these are very similar issues to what were encountered in the, the 30s and 40s. And what struck me writing this story is that FDR, his closest associates, and indeed many Republicans, because to be elected four times for FDR, you needed Republicans to elect you as well. They defined it in terms of fairness. And that's the way we must think of domestic policy today. That's a good point. Fairness. Yes. Like for the people, really for the people, right? Like look at at the people, not just at your, you know, these congressmen and these senators that go to their offices every day and look in their mirror and say, I represent the people. No, you really do. You really do the people. It's not you. It's the people. And you're a part of that collective group. And your constituents are both sides of the field. You have left and right constituents, okay? They may not have voted for you, but they're still your constituents. And you mm-hmm. still have an obligation in the community to hear them out, you know, for their wants and needs as well. It's not just a, you know, I, I, I'm not running for politics. I, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. But it feels like it needs a nice vibe in there. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Oh, geez. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. So, Derek, another thing that you kind of alluded to me over courting you onto the show was there's a museum that you're involved with. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yes, indeed. It's the newly opened National Museum of the United States Army here in Washington, D.C., actually right outside the Capitol itself near Mount Vernon. There had been a Marine Corps museum, as we all know. There had been a National Naval Museum, actually right here near the mall in Washington, D.C., There'd never been an army museum. There'd been lots of small museums scattered around the country at Fort Benning, at Carlisle Barracks, etc. And indeed, the presidential authorization to create a museum for the army went back to the War of 1812. But it had never been acted upon, no national museum. And 
after 9-11, in the early 2000s, there became a, a citizen enthusiasm for creating such a national museum of the U.S. Army. Congress weighed in, gave significant sums. Many of us started raising money from small donors. And the upshot was to build the premier military history museum in the world, which is right here outside of Washington. And I would add that the way we think of a museum in the 2020s is not the way that you and I, when we were kids, would go to a museum and look at exhibits through glass cases. A museum now is a truly interactive learning experience, indeed gamified in many ways. So to be sure, you can see the, the muskets and the machine guns and the swords and the tanks. But there's also at the National Museum of the U.S. Army, you know, a ph phenomenal way you can interact and engage with the stories. And indeed, we have a, a hundred acres on which tank maneuvers can be conducted and reenactments of cavalry charges. So a museum today is an educational institution with much outreach. Are you saying that at some time on the calendar, there's going to be tank demonstrations on the property? That's the plan. That's the plan. It opened, the museum opened in 2020 amid COVID that autumn. So it has been getting into gear really just the past year. But your followers can find it on nunumusa, N-U-M-U-S-A dot org. And you can see what our National Museum of the U.S. Army is like. And that's like new Musa, N-U-M-U-S-A dot org. Right. Okay, perfect. We'll have that put into the website at the bottom. So if anybody wants to click on it, they can just, you know, go down to the bottom of that on softrep.com uh, and just click on the museum. Yeah, and... it's, a, it's a marvelous, fulfilling experience to see the visitors because so many of the families that would visit Mount Vernon, for example, right, right outside of town when they're in D.C., will then come to the museum. And it, it's not just all, you know, veterans, but you, you see entire families, children. It's a marvelously educational, uplifting experience. It's definitely a place that you should put on your list of visiting and paying respects and checking out when you go to visit Washington, D.C. To do those sightseeing tours, you should definitely check out the Army Museum. I know I want to, and if I make it to Washington, D.C., I'm, I'm going to look you up and come and see that museum. <laughs> love to give a tour. Oh, I would love it. I bet you got some special forces, like segment things. And tell me you got a display about a cook. Tell me there's somebody that's like a mannequin with a cook and the whole grill's all laid out because how of an important job is the cook? We all know about the airborne paratrooper. We all know about that. But what about the airborne paratrooper cook? <laughs> Don't recall seeing a special culinary exhibit. The Special Forces in Airborne, as you know, they have their own specialized museum in Fayetteville, North Carolina. But what we have done with the National Museum of the U.S. Army is bring all of this together to show the Army presence in America's history from the very beginning, including the Lewis and Clark expedition. Oh, wow. All of those factors. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Buffalo Soldiers. And we don't hide, yeah. I think, from the inequities you know, the slaughter of Native Americans or segregation in the armed forces. That is all put out there as part of the education. As it should be. You know, we can't not remember where and what we've done to be where we are. So I'm okay with, you know, history. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a fun thing, right? It just opens your mind. You're like, oh, wait, you mean I'm in Utah, right? Wait, this was Mexico? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> This was Mexico for two years when we lived, when the Mormons moved here, and then it became Utah. See, you learn, okay? You just learn things. <laughs> well, listen, I've taken up a lot of your time, and we've been talking, and it's been a wonderful experience, and you're such an eloquently 
spoken uh, guest. I, I really appreciate having you on and, and all of the hoops you jumped through to get onto the show. And Unlikely Heroes is a book that is out right now that you can buy at any store or specialty shop. Try to buy local at mom and pop bookstores if you can, or if they don't have it, ask them to order it and then they can order it for you and buy it from them. If you have to buy it the other way, totally get it. But also the other book is To Dare and To Conquer, which is special operations. You know, Derek is the author of many things, that book as well. And you should check that out. And it, at the bottom of, you know, the soft rep article here, it'll just have some of these links that you can just go check out whatever Derek's got going on. And Derek, you've been a wonderful guest. Do you have anything that you would like to say last closing words here? No, it's it's just an honor to speak to your your many followers, listeners, observers. And I would leave us all with what we can all agree on, this quest for fairness in completing the American experiment. Okay, well, thanks for being on the show. Quest for fairness. I'm going to leave it at that. This is Rad saying peace. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.